0: Would you stand with me as we read God's Word together and turn in your Bibles? I hope you have one with you this morning to the first book in the Bible, Genesis. Bible's book of beginnings, particularly chapter 35, is where we find ourselves this morning in our ongoing study through the Bible's first book. We come once again today in our study of Genesis to a rather large text as we want to look at all of chapter 35 and all of chapter 36. And kids, that means if your math is correct, or at least if my math is correct. That means we've got 71 verses to look at together this morning. But we're going to spend the vast majority of our time in chapter 35, because if you glance down at the text right now, you'll see chapter 36 is simply Esau's genealogy. So we'll make some points along the way in chapter 36, really one major point. But we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 35. And what I want to do to get us started is just read the first 15 verses Of Genesis 35, as God once again speaks to his chosen son, Jacob. And then I'll pray for our time and and we'll begin. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through his word. And God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, that I may make there an altar to God, who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them. So they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak tree below Bethel. So he called its name Alon-Bakuth. And God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob, but no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply, a nation and company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So God, so Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do pray for your mercy and your grace. We pray for fullness of the Spirit as we want to observe your wondrous truth in this text. Open our hearts and our minds to listen with meekness, to respond with humility. Open my mouth that I might speak with clarity and courage, that we might see Jesus Christ, that he might be exalted from this text, and we might see again your faithful promises that you made to us that are all yes and amen in your Son. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. I remember the story from some time in the 19th century of a small church Scottish pastor on his way into the sanctuary to preach on the Lord's Day when he was stopped on the way in by one of his deacons who began to rebuke him for his apparent ineffectiveness in the church. And he said, "Uh, Brother Pastor, I'm wondering about your ministry because in the last year We've only added one person to this church, and even that one person is one young boy. And so as he's, you know, walking up the steps to preach on that Lord's Day and ascend to the sacred desk, he was doing so with an unusually heavy heart, as can often happen in preaching. And as he walked down and began to intermingle with the people in his congregation, that same one young boy came up to him and said, Pastor, do you think If I work hard enough that I could be a preacher one day, that maybe I could even be a missionary. And the pastor laid his hand on this young boy's head and he says, Ah, this makes all the ache I feel all well, because Robert, I do think that you will be a preacher one day. And that Robert was none other than a famous missionary in the 19th century named Robert Moffat. We took the gospel to areas previously unreached in Africa, translated the Bible for the first time into the language of Setswana, and even became eventually the father-in-law of the famous David Livingston. And isn't it true so oftentimes in life you are continuing on in your relationship with God, your service to God, your labor for God, but you wonder if actually it's doing anything. You wonder maybe in some ways if God has left you alone that no longer do you hear from Him, that no longer do you receive affirmation and encouragement from His Word and according to His promise. Perhaps it may be some of you in here this morning, your parents, and you're working hard to bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, yet you are wondering, will I ever get to see the time when they actually are walking on the straight and narrow? Or it seems as though my steadfastness to Christ is only resulting in more sadness and sorrow in my life. When is God going to come and And comfort me. And perhaps even as we turn our attention this morning to Genesis 35, Jacob is asking similar questions. He, of course, has heard God's great promises. He's heard God's word delivered to himself visibly and audibly. Yet he seems to only reap difficulty and danger along the way, as we saw last week in chapter 34. For many years, we know, quite certainly, God has remained silent from Jacob. And what maybe he's wondering is God indeed going to again encourage me? Is God indeed going to again give me some sort of affirmation of His grace? And what we see in our text today is God does exactly that. In a way that's somewhat unique, we have a text that's full of characters. Little scenes all packed together in the course of one chapter or really even two chapters. But they're telling us the same theme that we seemingly see over and over in Genesis. Every single chapter reminding us that God is faithful to His promises. Now that's the theme of our text this morning, God's continuing faithfulness to His people. Even in the lowest moments, even after the darkest struggles, God continues to remain faithful to His covenant promises to His people. So it's a text that's not just full of only of characters, uh, which you'll see children, if you just kind of glance your way through the text, it's full of burials and births. In particular, there are four different burials that come in chapter 35 alone, and you might want to notice them along the way because they punctuate the story as what we see happening, hence the title of the sermon, is what we find today in our text is the end of an era, as one patriarch will pass away, and really the story will even move on from the next patriarch to his children. Namely, the sons of Jacob. So, what we're thinking about then is God's faithfulness, his constant continuing faithfulness to his people, and two different parts. Chapter 35, God's faithfulness to Jacob's family. And chapter 36, God's faithfulness to Jacob's enemy, namely Esau. But we'll get there in time. So, if you weren't with us last week, we looked at chapter 34 which is one of the darkest and most difficult chapters in all of Genesis. If you weren't with us, the story went something like this. Jacob had arrived safely back in the promised land, but he had stopped short of his vowed destination of Bethel, about 24 hours short in this place called Shechem. And it was a seemingly small mistake that resulted in a rather massive problem. Shechem, who is the prince of the lands, proved to be a a slave to his lusts as he takes Jacob's daughter Dinah and he lays with her, seizes her and defiles her, brings great shame upon the household of Israel. But last week we saw Jacob really didn't do anything about it. He seemingly left it to his sons to deal with a matter of justice and even vengeance upon the wrong done upon Dinah. So two of his sons... Dinah's brothers, Simeon and Levi. Do you remember what they do? This great scheme of deception and retribution that results in the annihilation of all the men in Shechem, plunders the city down to the last penny, and Jacob, if you glance up to verse 30 of chapter 35, he speaks for the first and only time in chapter 34, and essentially he wonders aloud, do you realize the problem you've brought upon me? That the Canaanites in the land, the other tribes, they're going to come now and enact vengeance upon us because of your vengeance upon Shechem. And that kind of fear, that kind of anxiety is very much in the background as God now comes again to Jacob in chapter 35 to remind him of his faithfulness. For look at God's command in verse 1. He says, Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled your brother Esau. Now, kids, you might have to think further back in Genesis chapter 28. That was when Jacob was last in Bethel. This place, remember, he was sleepy at night. And what does he roll underneath his head as a pillow? Well, a very comfortable rock. And in that middle of the night, God shows up in this great, famous stone staircase dream and delivers to Jacob all of these astonishing and amazing promises. And Jacob's so struck with the moment that he makes this vow to God. He says, okay, If you're going to be with me, and he trusts that God's going to be with him and bring him back to this place, he says, I'm going to return to Bethel and worship you here. And so along the way, we've mentioned in previous weeks, well, why hasn't Jacob actually then made it all the way back to Bethel? Because it's hard to know the chronology of the passage. But it seems like he may have stopped short in Shechem for something like a decade, certainly several years before getting back to Bethel. And it's now God comes to him in the midst of his fear, in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of his family turmoil, and says, Jacob. It's now time to do what you said you were going to do. Arise, go up to Bethel. And it was a literal ascent that he was going to have to make because Bethel was some thousand feet above where Shechem would have been. But really in the text, it's more of a spiritual ascent that Jacob has to make. It's a return, it's a a rededication, it's even repentance that God is calling for in his command. And you'll see that based on Jacob's command that follows. Look at verse 2. He says to his household, and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. And maybe you're like me, and you wonder, well, where did these foreign gods come from? Right? This is the covenant leader of the covenant home, and Jacob is now saying so many years later, maybe even decades later, okay, it's time to get rid of all the idols, Well, it could have been those that Rachel had taken from her father Laban so many years prior. It's certainly possible as Jacob's sons plundered the city of Shechem, that they also included in that plunder what they gathered to themselves was the idols of those city. Whatever the reason was, the family says, yes, it's time. It's an act of repentance, isn't it? Look at verse 4. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Now, kids, it might sound funny. They gave Jacob all their earrings. But at that time in the ancient East, it was very common to wear idols as earrings. There was even this magical power they believed belonged to jewelry. That if you kind of combined jewelry with religious, uh, religious devotion, there would be this kind of innate protection that would come from wearing these idols on your ears. And so they take all of these idols off their ears, whatever idols they had to find that were lounging around and hiding their way within the tents of Jacob. And you'll see that they bring them into a great heap. And what does Jacob do? The end of verse 4, Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And the verb in Hebrew for hid, it actually is more like we would speak about today as he dumped them. He dumped them underneath the earth, underneath this tree. And it shows us once again in the story of Scripture this kind of ironic nature of idolatry. Right? We've seen it in chapters past in Genesis. Uh, Laban's gods were not powerful enough to prevent themselves from being kidnapped. All of these gods are not strong enough to prevent themselves from being buried under the earth. That idols, false gods, are never powerful to actually do what they supposedly can do. And I wonder if maybe your household or maybe your life might be in a similar place as Jacob. Where you likewise need to take your household gods and put them in the trash. Throw them in a trash heap that they might be hidden. As you renew yourself once again in devotion to God. Because don't we all have cherished sins. Treasured idols that we think are going to give peace. Prosperity. Provision. Even protection. And we realize of course in accordance with God's word. They don't prove to do any of that. How we must, in devotion to God, repent and get rid of them. Well, that's exactly what Jacob does. And you'll see in the next few verses, he eventually makes it finally to Bethel. And he does finally what he said he was going to do. He worships God. He builds an altar there. But interrupting this scene of worship is another burial that's altogether unexpected. Look at verse 8. And Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak below the Bethel. There's a couple of interesting things about verse 8. First of all, students, when was the last time you heard Deborah's name in Genesis? You should say, never. Because she's never been named in Genesis. It probably is the nurse that was mentioned in chapter 25, verse 49, the nurse that went with Rebecca when she married Isaac. Clearly she's been in the family for a long time. Possibly more interesting to you is to know that while Rebecca's nurse, her death and burial is mentioned. Rebecca's death and burial is never mentioned in Scripture. It's called scholars for many years to wonder, why is Rebecca's death never mentioned? Why is her burial not important enough, but her nurse's burial is important enough to even speak of? Well, it's possible in the chronology of the text that she's long been dead by this and It just doesn't make sense to talk about it because she didn't die along the way like Deborah did. And if that's the case, of course, Jacob spent decades of his life, really after he left his mother, never seeing her ever again. It's also certainly possible in the nature of the text that this is the the narrator's kind of subtle way of pronouncing judgment upon Rebekah for her deceptive nature and scheming that we've seen in chapters past, that even her death and burial wasn't worth a mention in the text. Whatever it is, clearly, verse 8, Jacob is burying a beloved member of his household. I don't think it's a stretch for us to assume, therefore, that there would be a degree of sadness in such a funeral. And it's important for us to note, isn't it? Because as God is going to continue to reveal his faithfulness in the rest of this passage, we just see it over and over. God keeps being faithful to his promise. What we likewise see in these burials is Jacob's sadness increases. And sometimes, maybe we need to remember that, don't we? That God is faithful to his promises, but his faithfulness doesn't erase or eliminate all sadness from life. Even sometimes in your own experience, it may seem the more we recognize God's faithfulness is the more sorrow and suffering that we feel that we're enduring. And of course, in such moments, isn't it true, a devil sits on your shoulder and will say, See, if God was truly faithful to you, you wouldn't be suffering this kind of sadness. You wouldn't be suffering this kind of sorrow But maybe you know how it's actually in such moments that God reveals maybe most profoundly just how faithful He is to His promise. And that's in part what Jacob seems to experience in verse 10-12 through as God comes along once again and gives to Jacob information and promises that we've seen already, so forth, in Genesis. Now some of you parents may be like me. We have six young kids at home. And so that means, yeah, ne'er does a day go by without saying something or thinking something that sounds like, do I really have to repeat myself again? Right? And we've talked about this enough. You should know by now that you should do this, that you should not do this. Do I really need to tell you again? And maybe you know something of that feeling of frustration. But the good news of God's glory is that our Father in Heaven is never frustrated in that way. He loves to remind people. Of the same thing over and over again. To comfort his people with the same promises over and over again. You do know, don't you, that so much of life in Christ is not really about finding information you don't already know about. But hearing, once again, promises that you dare not forget. Because look at what God says to Jacob in verse 10 through 12. He says, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. We've seen that already, that name change in chapter 32. In the sweep of Genesis, especially the ongoing rest of the Old Testament, Israel essentially becomes the way to speak about the corporate identity of Jacob's family. Where Jacob, when it's talking about him individually, he'll be referred to as Jacob. And we'll see that work itself out in Genesis. But God's promises continue, verse 11 and 12. I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply a nation, and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And if you've been with us in our studies of Genesis, if you're familiar with the previous chapters, you know that no single phrase of verse 11 and 12 is new. We've seen it a lot. Jacob's actually heard it a lot. He's heard it from God in an appearance before. But clearly, Jacob needs the comfort once again as he's returned to God to worship him at Bethel to remember yet again that God is the covenant keeping. He is the faithful promise-making God. And you might want to circle, students, as the two main parts of the Abrahamic covenant that are within those verses again, the promises of seed and land, that God's going to not just make Jacob into a great family. It's going to be a company of nations. A company of kings will come forth from him. God is completing his promises there at Bethel. And what's interesting, as the family moves on now from Bethel, God actually completes the family, but he does so in a way that leads to another burial. Look at verse 16 through 18. The family journeyed from Bethel. And then when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. Now, kids, do you remember what Rachel's first son was named? Joseph. A little bit harder question is what did Joseph's name mean? This is interesting Hebrew play on words that essentially meant, May the Lord add to me another son. It was a name that was a prayer. And you see here, God answers the prayer, but certainly not in the way that Rachel would have wanted. God gives her another son, but it's a son that she can hold long enough just to name. And even that name doesn't stick, which is astonishing because to this point in Genesis, Jacob has never named any one of his children. But he now changes the name from Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. It makes sense with certainly her anguish and hardship and in burying this child and obviously it resulting in her clear death. She knew she was getting ready to die. Her soul was departing. Well, Jacob changed it from son of my sorrow to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Now, students, do you know why the right hand was so important in that ancient world? You know, it was symbolic of primacy, of power, of of preeminence. A name like Benjamin, son of my right hand, is the kind of name you would normally give to a firstborn, not your final born. Because it was the firstborn that was supposed to have preeminence, place, and power. And then the text moves after Rachel's death and burial to speak of that very firstborn son and tell us why he actually doesn't get the preeminence and power. Look at verse 22. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. You know, Jacob's family can't cease to be a soap opera, can it? Right? You have the firstborn son, after Rachel dies, sleeping with Rachel's servant, which was Jacob's concubine that had bore Jacob a few sons, and you come to just this verse seemingly randomly inserted in the rest of the passage. And you wonder, why do we need to know this? Or what was even Reuben doing in this moment? I think the most likely answer to what Reuben was doing, you have to know something about the ancient eastern customs. You remember, who's, who's Jacob's cherished chief wife? Well, it's Rachel. All right, she's the beloved one that has all of his affection. Well, she's just died. And so therefore, this, this status of the chief wife is now vacant. So, what Reuben seems to do, says, hey, I'm going to sleep with Bilhah, Rachel's servant, to disqualify her from being chief wife, so that my mother, who is Leah, the unloved older sister of Rachel and first wife of Jacob, she actually can be the chief wife. Or it's also possible, and according to the customs of the time when a father died, the son, oldest son, would inherit his concubines. That it's a very striking way and certainly troubling way in our culture today for Reuben to, in in a way, stake out his claim on the inheritance by doing what he did in this gross, sinful deed. Well, the text doesn't tell us here, does it, at the end of verse 22, that Jacob again does anything about it, says anything about it. Well, he's going to several years in the future. Flip over to verse 3 and 4 of chapter 49. We said last week in chapter 34, what we saw is the reason why Simeon and Levi forfeited their right to the inheritance as the second and third-born sons of Jacob. Here's why Reuben forfeits his right to the inheritance. If you don't know the context of chapter 49, Jacob's on his deathbed. He's got these kind of spirit-wrought prophecies he's making of each child, and he begins with Reuben, and what does he say? Verse 3 and 4, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. It sounds like you are the son of my right hand. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Why? Because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it, he went up to my couch. So, in thinking he was going to stake a claim to it all, Reuben forfeited it all. And kids, I hope you know that Sinful strategies such as this never can deliver on what they promise. They only, of course, bring misery in the end. That only God can deliver on his promises, which is how the chapter rounds out. It's got two more promises of God. It's emphasizing his faithfulness unto. You'll see in verse 22, when Israel lived in the land, I'm sorry, verse 22 at the end. Now the sons of Jacob were 12, so they're completed. There's 12 sons. God has made good on his promise to multiply Jacob's family, which will be eventually multiplied indeed into a company of tribes and nations. But not just the promise of multiplying his family, also the promise of restoring Jacob to his father, Isaac, which God had declared to Jacob in chapter 28. He said, I'll bring you back to your father's house. Well, look at verse 27 and following. Jacob came to his father, Isaac, in Mamre at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Skip down to verse 29, and Isaac breathed his last. The old King James says he gave up the ghost, which is where we actually got that phrase from. At the age of 180, Isaac died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So the text is structured in such a way to let us know, it's signaling for us, it's the end of an era. A patriarch has died, and then by virtue of what comes in chapter 36, it's now telling us the trajectory and the future of the the son that wasn't chosen, just as the text did way back when with Ishmael when the story moved from Isaac to Jacob, from Abraham, Isaac to Jacob. And so it's reminding us that God's not just faithful only to his family. God is also faithful to Jacob's enemy. Because remember, Esau is Jacob's arch rival. His nation, detailed now in chapter 36, is the great initial stumbling block and threat to Israel when they are wandering their way into the promised land. So then we move from faithfulness to Jacob's family to God's faithfulness to Jacob's enemy because God did promise through Jacob in I'm sorry through Isaac in chapter 27 that Esau was going to be a great nation. He would serve Jacob for a while, he would serve Israel for a while, but eventually Esau and Edom would break out from under that yoke. I have a friend who's very much into fantasy football, as you might know co-workers or friends that are likewise very much into fantasy football and and one of these guys that he loves to have on his team in recent seasons evidently is this receiver for the Los Angeles Rams named Cooper Cup and Cooper Cup made a splash years ago or at least his coach college coach made a splash years ago when he was training and getting ready for the combine and draft day and the coach was regaling regaling other coaches in the NFL with stories of Cooper Cup's addiction which was an addiction to watching game film. He was married as a young student so he had a wife in college and it was normally his custom that he would leave her at midnight and go to the training facility to watch game film all in an effort to know his opponents. And for the original audience listening to Genesis for the first time, Genesis 36 is really here in that, kind, that similar kind of way. You must know your opponent. Israel, you're getting ready to go into the promised land. You're going to soon run into this great nation of Edom. You need to know where they came from. You need to know that they are strong. You need to know that they are significant. Because just glance your way through the list of names that comes in chapter 36. They're many. They're full of tribes. They're full of chiefs. But it's all meant to highlight this essential point. That's kind of this repetition you get throughout chapter 36. Look at verse 1. We're told these are the generations of Esau. That is Edom. Skip down to verse 8. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Look at verse 19. These are the sons of Esau, that is, Edom. And these are their chiefs. The final verse in the passage, verse 43. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is, Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. So the original audience, they must have surely heard that connection, right? Edom that we're getting ready to have to confront, that we're getting ready to run into, that is Esau the nation of the unchosen brother, the arch rival of our father Jacob and Israel. is surely meant to, of course, as they've just listened to the entire narrative, remember that God promised to protect them from all of their enemies, to deliver them safely into the promised land. But in a striking way we, we dare not miss, we have to see God's faithfulness to Jacob's enemies. You know a God that is so rich and sovereign and abundant in His mercy and grace that it's not isolated only to His covenant family. He sustains all people. He gives life and breath to all people. He prospers any nation according to His sovereign decree, even when they aren't included in His sovereign covenant. His mercy still falls on people like Esau, like Edom. So immense is God's faithfulness to His promise To whomever that promise belongs, God is continuing in his faithfulness to Jacob's family. I had a friend years ago that had this album that came out, the CD that he would always play in his car. And we were in this season of soccer playing, we were driving around long hours pretty frequently, and he had this thing on repeat. And whenever you got to the final song, it actually you know, went silent for a couple of minutes until a new song came forth. And it was this bonus song you know that you can sometimes get off old albums. And it was just an acoustic guitar that just kind of began strumming. And the singer-songwriter began to sing what was titled One Chord Song. And it was genuinely a one-chord song. Everything was in the key of G. He was only playing one chord throughout the entire three-minute little ditty. And you could be forgiven for thinking there was actually more chords in there. Is using different voicings for the key, different voicings and shapes for the key of G, the chord of G. But in the end, it was still one song telling one story, just using different variations. And in a similar way, Genesis is doing the same thing. I hope you've noticed this. It's one song telling one story, the story of the covenant-keeping, faithful God who brings about His promises to pass, just as He said they would come to pass for His covenant people. But that song of faithfulness, that one chord song of God's trustworthy steadfastness, it does have variations along the way. It helps us know something of the, the richness and the fullness of His faithfulness. And As we begin to close, I want to point out just a couple of these variants, if you will, these different voicings of God's faithfulness you find in the passage. So the first of which is God is faithful to correct, to convict His people about their sin. Because if you look again at verse 2, Jacob's response to God's command of chapter 35 verse 1 is clearly that he needs to repent and rededicate himself to God. Maybe it shouldn't be striking to me, but it is. You know, Jacob had received so much of divine grace from God. Appearances, commands. Jacob is well old by this time. However old he is, I don't really know. Certainly north of a hundred by this point, it seems. And yet he still needs God's faithfulness of conviction. He still needs to be corrected out of patterns of sin. He still needs, if you will, revival in his heart. That he would be restored to fellowship with God. And many of you know that the entire life of a Christian is the entire life of repentance. Until your dying day, God is faithful to correct you. God is faithful to convict you over your sin. And like Jacob, you see it as a means by which you can increase fellowship and nearness with God. Such as his kindness. He wants to dwell with his people just like he dwelled with Jacob at Bethel. And he needed to correct him. He needed to convict him first. And God is faithful to do that. Also, God is faithful to carry his people through danger. Look back at verse 5. He's journeying from Shechem to Bethel. And as they journeyed, the text says, chapter 35, verse 5, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So maybe Jacob was genuinely right to feel this fear at the end of chapter 34 that the nations, the tribes of the Canaanites... We're going to come against him. But as they're on their way to Bethel, God says, I'm sending my terror before you. You need not fear anything. I will carry you through all the way through such danger. And don't you want to know what the terror was? God is going to use almost the exact same language in Exodus 23 of the nation of Israel, just redeemed out of Egypt. He says, I'm going to send my terror before you, which in context there, verse 22 and 27 of Exodus 23, is his angel. We don't know what the terror was, what the dread was, what the intimidation was that went before Jacob, but whatever it was, it protected him. And maybe you're in here this morning, and you don't need to only be convicted of your sin. You need to be reminded that God is faithful to carry you through danger. When all around the world seems to oppose you. Enemies seem to encompass you on every side in a way you can't possibly see or possibly can't comprehend. God still is sending His protection before you. Surrounding you with his majesty and his dread that you might be protected all the way to the place that he has told you to go. He's faithful to convict, he's faithful to carry. Finally, he's faithful to complete his promise. I hope you see how God has completed already here now by the end of chapter 35, a number of promises that he made to Jacob. I promise I'll bring you back to the promised land. Well, that promise is complete. I've promised to multiply your offspring. With the birth of Benjamin, that promise is complete. And yet it's pointing us, isn't it, even the very birth of Benjamin to the final completion of all of God's promises? Because look back at verse 19 of chapter 35. Rachel died after giving birth to Benjamin, and she was buried on the way to where? Bethlehem. I hope you see the echo, don't you? The son of Jacob's right hand born in Bethlehem. God completing a promise so many centuries in the future what would he do the son of God's right hand born in Bethlehem to complete all of God's promises and so God continues to correct his people and convict them about their sin through his son Jesus Christ he continues to carry them through danger Through His Son, Jesus Christ. He continues to complete His promises. Because they're yes and amen in Jesus Christ. He's not just the Son of God's right hand. He has ascended to where? The Father's right hand. Where He continues to minister to us. He continues to pour out upon us blessings and benefits. From His faithful kindness towards us. We who don't deserve it. Just as Jacob didn't deserve it. Such as the immensity and the eternality of God's covenant faithfulness in His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your faithfulness is so great it knows no measure. That it abounds in ways we cannot comprehend. We ask for increased trust. We pray for increased reliance upon you as we see in the story of Genesis over and over and over again, your faithfulness to your promise. Help us, therefore, by your Spirit to be faithful to you, to be firm, to be steadfast, to be immovable in our trust, that you might be glorified as we continue to dwell with you through your Son, Jesus Christ, and by your Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.